Welcome to Mi'kmaq Matters, a podcast about the Mi'kmaq people and the Halibut First Nation. I'm Glenn Wheeler. Last week, our guest was incoming Central Vice Chief Randy Drover. One of the things we discussed was hunting and fishing rights and the impact of the Drew decision. The Drew decision is our subject this week, and we'll be talking to two of the people involved in that case, Meowbegag Chief Mazel Joe and historian William Wicken. We heard a lot about fishing and hunting rights during the campaign from several of the candidates. It's about more than the moose on the salmon, but about the self-esteem as a First Nation and having the same rights as other bands. But there's a hurdle. It's called the Drew Decision. It's named after Ken Drew, a member of the Maelbegag First Nation, who had a cabin in what is now known as the Bay du Nord Wilderness Area near Con River. Mi'kmaq people have hunted and fished in that area for generations. But the province of Newfoundland and Labrador said the cabin owners were in wrongful possession of Crown land and ordered them off. The Mi'kmaq people made two kinds of claims, that they had an Aboriginal right to be on that land and that they had a treaty right based on the peace and friendship treaties entered into by Mi'kmaq and signed in what is now known as Nova Scotia. After 47 days of testimony, that generated 150,000 pages of historical material. The Mi'kmaq lost on all counts. To be an Aboriginal right, an activity must have been practiced before European contact. The court said the ancestors of the Mi'kmaq of Khan River arrived on the island sometime after 1550 and were so influenced by European ways at that time that an Aboriginal right cannot be claimed. And the court said that the treaty signed in 1761 between the Mi'kmaq and the Lieutenant Governor of Nova Scotia does not apply to Newfoundland. The judgment of the Newfoundland Supreme Court came down in 2002 and it was upheld by the Supreme Court of Canada in 2007. It was a costly and disappointing experience for Meobagag. I asked Chief Mazel Joe about whether he sees a path forward and what advice he has for those who might be thinking about getting back to court to undo Drew. Uh, thousands of dollars spent, uh, you know, getting there. And, um, and, th- and that's probably one of the biggest issues we have is that, that that's just one of them, is having the deep pockets enough to be able to continue with that kind of fight. Mm. And, um, you know, it, it drained us, uh, with our legal fund drained us dry to get there. And uh, whether or not, you know, we, we'll go back to the table again, I don't know. Hmm. Uh, won't be, it won't be in the immediate future because we just don't have the money to do it. You were uh, one of the witnesses for the defense, uh, one of, for the defense being the people who's, uh, who had the cabins and were ordered off. What was it like being on the stand in that uh, case? I didn't mind it. I enjoyed it, actually, to be honest, because it was a chance to tell our history and why so important to preserve what we have, mm. and so it was—it wasn't a hard chore by any means. It was, it was stressful at times, but it wasn't a hard. Uh... The defense had a had a tough uh, job because you had to prove that Mi'kmaq people were in that area, in the Bay du Nord area, prior 
to the Europeans arriving, so that was A, what you had to prove, and that the activities uh, that you said people had a right to carry on were integral to the traditional culture of the Mi'kmaq. Well, that's a, that was a tough, uh, a tough case to meet. Government of Newfoundland claimed uh, Mi'kmaq was arriving in Newfoundland after the 1700, 17-something when, when they met a British ship off the coast of Newfoundland, a uh, hmm. ship from Cape Britain and a ship from Britain somewhere, and they drew an accurate map of Newfoundland. This was then used in court as a, as a timetable when the Mi'kmaq was first come to Newfoundland, which is ludicrous. But nevertheless, to use that, that's part of their argument. So we were basically, so we're immigrants from Cape Britain, which we would have been, I guess, if that was the case back far in 1949. And um, so, you know, that's that's what they've been using and still continue to use. And I failed to see uh, where we were part of any treaty, uh, even the, the latest Marshall decision. Uh, but uh, Justice the Obari did say, in his uh, final uh, report that, uh, yes, we are part of a treaty, but we'd have to go to Nova Scotia to practice it. So I guess that was the the kind of bottom line in, in those cases was that, and this is what the the official pronouncement of the court is, agreed to by the Supreme Court of Canada. This is what the cases say, that the, the ancestors of the Mi'kmaq of Con River arrived on the island of Newfoundland sometime after 1550 A.D., by which time European contact and influences prevented their fishing, hunting, and trapping rights from attaining the status of Aboriginal rights. So what you say about the Mi'kmaq being immigrants, that's the way the courts uh, see it, including, I guess, the Supreme Court of Canada, because they didn't accept uh, your appeal. And so, and and how do we, um, you know, that's a, a big hurdle for any uh, band in Newfoundland that wants to assert uh, hunting and fishing rights, um, so how do we um, how do we go forward on that? Uh, perhaps uh, the courts aren't the best way to do it, and perhaps there has to be some negotiations with with governments because, uh, as we see, the courts aren't really receptive to the uh, Mi'kmaq story in Newfoundland. Well, it, it's changing a bit, but uh, that might be one one option that we we would have, uh, and to some degree we've done that uh, to. Uh, negotiations with uh, the park and going to take moose in the fall, basically because they're over one on one moose. So that's that's a that's a little step in terms of recognition of who we are. And there's other little things that we could be doing too, as well, like fishing the rivers, you know, abiding by the conservation rules that's in place. Because we had a we had a Knit in the bay, we would catch salmon in the bay of food fishery. And we, we took it up and choose the fish in the rivers in terms of conservation. And, um, and all, all those little things that we can do, we, we got the eel fishermen that was coming in, white fishermen coming in the bay of spare into the Con River area, uh, the fish for eels and pot. So we moved them out, forced them out, and, uh, set it up as a conservation area for eel spearing only. So lots of, you know, it's not a big thing, but there's lots of little things that we've been doing over the years to finally get to the stage, hopefully. One of these days, we might be able to go back again. But the other part of that, we need to find additional information about uh, how early our people were there in this province. It's a lot earlier than what 
uh, the government of Newfoundland or any government the same. But I wonder how we prove that for, I mean, the court in court, it's hard to prove what happened, uh, you know, last last month or last year, if it's, you know, some kind of uh, criminal trial or whatever, uh, thing, things that happened a lot more recently are hard to prove. But here we're going back to hundreds and hundreds of years ago. So to get to think that we can get information that's going to meet the court's uh, standards, uh, you know, is maybe a little bit difficult. And also, you know, they look at uh, burial sites. And if you look at the coast of Newfoundland, burial sites two year, 200 years ago are no longer on land. It's offshore. Mm-hmm. Our people didn't go inland to bury their people that was along the shoreline. They buried them on the shoreline. We found artifacts that were 50 feet offshore. But, and you can't see, but you can't find a burial site. And they have the same issues in, in Cape Breton, too. But. The way the court uh, expressed it was that, uh, you know, it drew this picture of uh, Mi'kmaq uh, coming from Cape Breton to uh, maybe Bay St. George and then on to, uh, on to the Con River area. I wonder if there was uh, – the court seems to, um, you know, drawn a conclusion about uh, the Con River area. I wonder if there would be a, a better chance if um, – if there was a, a claim uh, regarding some area on the West Coast, because it seemed the court didn't really say very much about that. The Drew case was more focused on Con River. So I wonder if that would be a better avenue. Anything is possible. Again, uh, the pockets are deep, and the time it takes, and, and a lot of time, uh, it's possible. But I guess your advice is, unless you have lots of money, don't bother. But no, I wouldn't say don't bother, but uh, find a way to do it. But uh, keep in mind that it's going to cost you a lot of money. Yes. I would never say don't bother because I think that's something that we always have to have in the back of our mind is that somewhere along the way we'll find something that will uh, trigger this uh, again and, we'll, you know, uh, hopefully we could find the money. Chief Mazel Joe. One of the people who shared the witness stand with Chief Mazel was historian William Wicken. Bill Wicken was also an expert witness in the famous Tunnel Marshall trial in which the Mi'kmaq man from Nova Scotia was charged with catching and selling eels without a license. Donald Marshall won in part by relying on that same treaty from 1761 that Bill Wicken invoked in the Drew case. Wicken says the best hope for Newfoundland Mi'kmaq may be in that treaty and in the way that our ancestors viewed Cape Breton and Newfoundland as part of the same territory. You know, when the Mi'kmaq signed the 1760-61 treaties, whether the uh, chief or Sagamo from Cape Breton Island was actually representing a broader constellation of people, which would have included the Mi'kmaq from Newfoundland. We argued, in fact, that was the case, that Genoa, when he arrived in Halifax in June of 1761, he was doing so uh, on behalf of a broader constellation of people. Um, and I think that's a reasonable thing to say because there's no doubt at that time that there is a Mi'kmaq community in Newfoundland. I mean, there's no there's no question about that. So I think that's that was the stumbling point. Um, the court in this instance really wanted to see on a piece of paper that Janot was more than just an individual who represented the community of Cape Breton. So I think that's uh, sort of became a problem. Uh, it it. Strikes me from reading the the very long uh, uh, trial court decision that goes, I think, to about 500 pages, 
the in a way it's a kind of um, uh, capsulization of all that we know about uh, Mi'kmaq history in Newfoundland. I mean, there's, there's a lot of stuff there, much less known about the Mi'kmaq uh, history in Newfoundland uh, as compared to Nova Scotia. Yes. And that's because, um, uh, you know, I guess the information we're relying on for these uh, for these purposes is information that comes from the settlers, um, their their diaries, their scraps of paper, which weren't designed for this purpose, but we're using them to sort of draw clues to what the situation actually was. Yes, and and let me let me back up there and say actually we don't know very much about uh, the Mi'kmaq in Nova Scotia in the period before uh, really 1820, right? We really don't know very much at all, uh, and that's principally because, as you say, uh, the co- correspondence uh, is relatively scant. Most of the time, to understand something about the treaty making period that is between 1726 and 1779 in Nova Scotia, we're relying exclusively upon French and English records and the correspondence back and forth between the governors of Nova Scotia and then the governor of Ile Royale or Cape Breton Island um, back to their superiors in France and England. In, in New- Newfoundland, we have none of that. We have none of that. Um, we obviously have the correspondence backwards and forwards between St. John's uh, and other settlers on the Avignon Peninsula and uh, private and public servants in England. But when we come to talk about the Mi'kmaq who are in the interior of the province and not on the Avalon Peninsula, we have absolutely nothing, except where they may sporadically show up in the historical record. But where they show up sporadically in the historical record are um, along the coastline um, or because a shipping vessels or a... uh, a navy vessel, a British navy vessel, has come into contact with them. So that becomes that became the problem. Nobody disputed the fact that the Mi'kmaq were there, but whether they were permanent residents or not became an issue. So for Newfoundland, where the Mi'kmaq actually are, we have very, very little documentation. In, in fact, uh, almost none uh, because of where they're living. Uh, and they didn't keep records, of course, in their own language, or if they did keep records of their own in their own language, those records have uh, are no longer extant. So, you know, to sum up, really, you know, f- f- throughout the entire Atlantic region, we have very few records on the in the treaty making period. And so, as you say, you're sort of trying to guess at not guess is probably the wrong word, but trying to make some reasonable conclusions based upon what you do know to say what actually happened. And I think that's what the court then struggles with, because everything is about reasonable. What is reasonable? What is possible? What is more possible? What is most possible? And um, I think the court and the judge in, you know, the Drew decision really struggled with that. Like, what, what do I, what can I say with certainty? And then what can I might suspect, but don't actually know for sure. And I think that's a real problem for the courts. It puts everyone in a difficult situation because the judge is operating within legal parameters of, of proof. And But you're the historian of a certain kind of history where, as you say, there's not much 
that you can't say definitively it may be this, it may be that. But uh, when it comes to legal proof, you know, it's you're dealing with uh, you're dealing with uh, two mismatched uh, things. Uh, you know, this need for legal proof and what you can provide in terms of the history that we have available from that period. Yes, that, that's absolutely right. I mean, we know in, in criminal law, there's all all kinds of circumstantial evidence which to demonstrate whether something happened or that the individual who was accused actually committed that act. And not all the time do we have that definitive proof, but there's lots of circumstantial evidence. So it's the same kind of situation here where you have a lot of circumstantial evidence, but you're not absolutely sure. And uh, because the consequences are so uh, important, I think, you know, the judges want to step back from that and say, well, okay, wait a minute. <laughs> Do I actually know that? Mm. And on top of that, you also have expert witnesses on the other side who are saying something very different than what in the Drew case we were saying. So uh, the result of the Drew case was that the court concluded uh, the ancestors of the Mi'kmaq of Khan River arrived on the island of Newfoundland sometime after 1550 AD, uh, by which time uh, European contact had already uh, happened. And um, uh, and they went on, they also said that even if the Mi'kmaq were present, uh, the defendants did not prove that they had fished, hunted, and trapped in this specific territory. So there was a, a general finding and then this is the specific finding. So what is the possibility of dislodging that conclusion by the court, which was confirmed by the Supreme Court of Canada? Uh, is there evidence out there somewhere that we could find to dislodge that or are we left with that conclusion? That, i.e. before 1550, is yes. that what you're asking? Yeah, mm -hmm. I, I mean, you're, you're, it's a really tough mountain to climb and because there are no historical records, uh, printed historical records, which are going to show you that they're there before 1550. I, I, if they're there, then the question would be, well, why haven't they been found? And why they haven't been found is because they don't exist. There are very few English-produced records about Newfoundland in the period before 1550. There's very scant, um, if any at all, right, if any at all. So I, I think that's the mountain you'd have to climb. So archaeologically, that's the way you're going to have to demonstrate that, and that is dependent upon um, finding an archaeological dig which definitively proves that the people were there, but also that they were Mi'kmaq. Mm. And how are you going to prove that? Um, as you may know, that uh, demonstrating that a particular site is of a specific indigenous community is extraordinarily difficult and fraught in itself. So um, I think that would be, uh, you know, a real almost insurmountable hurdle. Now, that's not to say it's not surmountable. It's just that you know, the present time, I would say that would be very difficult. So for people who want to um, deal somehow with the uh, Drew decision and the sort of impact it has on the assertion of uh, of claims for fishing and hunting rights, uh, 
Uh, do you have any advice for them? Well, I would say uh, look to the treaties. Uh, you know, you don't want to make an Aboriginal claim because an Aboriginal claim is always difficult. In the Marshall case in 1993, when we sat down and talked about this uh, with the lawyers, with the um, uh, archaeologists, with the uh you know, political leadership within the McMahon community, there was a decision that had to be made. Do you want to defend Donald Marshall Jr.'s commercial right to the fishery or the McMahon right to the fishery? Do you want the commercial right to the fishery? Do you want to launch an uh, Aboriginal claim, an Aboriginal right claim, or do you want a right to, to launch a treaty right claim? And it was very quickly became apparent that there were just too many difficulties in trying to demonstrate that there was an Aboriginal right. And that's why we chose very early on, and, you know, finally it's the lawyers who make this decision with the political leadership, is there's a treaty right here, and that's where we're going to win. And secondly, well, what treaty? Well, we're not going to win on the 1752 treaty. We ditched that one pretty quick, too, because the documentation, at least the English documentation, said there was just one individual and possibly two communities that signed it, even though the Mi'kmaq leadership wanted to say, well, okay, there's the Grand Chief, and the Grand Chief in 1752 is Jean-Baptiste Cope. Well, where's your documentation? How are you going to get that past a, a judge? Mm-hmm. And even if you get through the trial, how are you going to get to the Supreme Court? Well, okay, so where are we going to go? Well, we can argue the 1726, and we can argue the 1760 treaty, so let's do that. So I tried to sort of argue this in front of the the court and, uh, you know, um, that the 1760 treaty actually applied to Newfoundland. That's where you're going to win, if you have any possibility whatsoever. Um, Now, whether the court will accept that, that's another question. But I think that there is a compelling argument to make that when Janot, you know, he does just represent Cape Breton Island. He's he's actually going back and forth between Cape Breton Island and Newfoundland. Mm. That's what he's doing. And uh, there is documentation which shows that. So if you want to hunt and fish in, in the sense of having an agreement with the provincial government, that's where the argument lies. Professor William Wicken. And that's an introduction to the Drew case. Obviously, a lot more to discuss as we continue the conversation on hunting and fishing rights. And that's it for the show. Allison Baker is the technical producer of Mi'kmaq Matters. Celebration time, used with the permission of Mi'kmaq artist Marcus Goss. Like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter. Listen to Mi'kmaq Matters on Bay of Islands Radio in Norris Point and Rocky Harbor. Tune in on The Voice of Bombay. And in St. John's, catch us on CHMR. I'm Glenn Wheeler. Till next time.